If you wish to become a complete and wise leader, you must embrace a larger view of the force. My name is Devor, and you are listening to episode two of A Larger View of the Force, a Star Wars podcast. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. I am so glad that you enjoyed the first episode and decided to give this show another shot. If you are new, not to worry, pull up a chair. There is plenty of room around the table for you. However, I strongly recommend that once you finish up with this episode, you pop into the old podcast feed, go download and listen to episode one. It's a bit of an introduction of sorts. You get to learn a little bit more about who I am and my journey as a Star Wars fan and how and why I ultimately decided to start this podcast. And hey, make sure you're smashing that subscribe button so that you'll be up to date with new episodes as they come out. So on this episode, as promised, we're going to be talking about one of the staples of the Star Wars franchise, really all the way back since 1977, and that is the lightsaber duel. So first off, I start uh, uh, start off by talking about what makes for a great lightsaber duel. You know, every Star Wars fan, from the casual viewers to the hardcore people, right? They all have their own you know lists and one uh, best ones and favorite ones and so on. But let's talk about some, what are some of the qualities that make for a great duel, like that, that, that distinguish the memorable ones from the less memorable ones. We'll get into that a little bit. And we'll talk about a bit about the evolution of lightsaber duels across the Skywalker saga. And we'll sort of do that chronologically. So we'll start with the prequels, then get into the original trilogy, and then ultimately into the sequels. And then last, but certainly not least, and will probably be the bulk of the show, is I'm going to go ahead and rank them. I'm going to give you my top 10 list of my favorite duels in all of Star Wars, and that is across the movies and the TV shows. And then we've got a couple of bubble picks, so ones that didn't quite crack the top 10, um, maybe might be in, uh, someday in the top 10, but are still worthy of um, recognition and of a shout out. So first, to start off by talking about what makes for a great lightsaber duel. So I've got a particular way of thinking about this. Again, every fan, every person who watches Star Wars, they're going to probably have their own sort of criteria and metrics and the ways they approach this, but I just wanted to share mine because I think it's I think it's one that's sort of pretty comprehensive of all the kind of ingredients and elements to a uh, to a lightsaber duel. So I think any lightsaber duel, or particularly any great lightsaber duel, is going to have two key components, and those are aesthetics and pathos. So I dig into each of these two words that I'm using. What do I mean by them exactly? So beginning first with aesthetics. So aesthetics, I think, of the two is probably a little bit more straightforward. So aesthetics really just refers to the actual look of the duel, right? What you're, actu- what you're actually seeing when you're looking at the screen, what is happening in front of you. Right? And there's a couple of sort of elements that go into um, creating the aesthetics of a Star Wars lightsaber duel. So one big one, naturally, is choreography, right? So the actual movements of the characters, whether they are live-action people or whether they're animated um, characters. And I think in the case, particularly with um, live-action, I don't think this, like, metric matters kind of as much with the 
with the animated duels is really sort of how realistic is what we're seeing on the screen, right? How much of it is a function of like raw physicality, whether that is from the actual actors themselves or from their stunt people, and how much is the duel having to lean on um, computer graphics and so on to make up uh, to, to make up for the things that the human body physically cannot cannot do? And I think that's really a kind of important balance to try and strike. And you know, one of the one of the knocks on the prequel films, particularly, I would say this is true with Attack of the Clones, and then especially going into Revenge of the Sith, is the leaning on the computer graphics in various different facets. But I think um, the, the, the places where you where you see the biggest issues with that can actually be with some of the lightsaber duels. And I would say probably to even narrow that a little bit further, I think that's particularly the case with the duels involving the two older actors, right? So Christopher Lee and Ian McDermott, who in a lot of cases, weren't able to physically perform a lot of the stunts associated with the duel and had to lean more on either their stunt people or on computer graphics, more so than even com- compared to like a-, a Ewan McGregor or a Hayden Christensen. Um, uh, you know, I think if you look back at some of the, it's, it's some little moments, I would say this is particularly the case with Revenge of the Sith. I think there's some in Attack of the Clones, but really in the, in the third act. When you look at, for example, the duel on the Invisible Hand uh, on Grievous's ship with Count Dooku, uh, there are little moments there, and there are also little moments in the duel in the Chancellor's office um, between uh, Mace and Palpatine, where you see like where some of that computer graphic work like may have been kind of cutting edge for 2005, or maybe the best they can do then, but basically in the years since like hasn't aged all that well. Like you can really really tell where the seam is, you know, in terms of going from a an actual person or going from the actor, right, from Ian McDermott or from Christopher Lee, going into like a stunt person or computer graphics and so on. Um, so some of that is kind of there, there's some of those rough edges there that. Um, looking back, don't look all that great. And, you know, maybe one day, um, you know, there's some people who've talked about, speculated that one day we might get a special edition version of the prequels. Um, I would personally like that a lot. And if we do, one of the things that I hope to see, to the extent that it is possible, is that they clean up some of the some of the computer graphics around those lightsaber duels. Not not in the sense of like remaking the duels or anything necessarily, but just doing some touch up on like on the faces and everything like that, just to try and, you know, make those seams a little smoother between like the practical and the computer graphics. Um, so we don't see those transitions as harshly as we sometimes do now. Um, so yeah, so that's so that's one element sort of going into the aesthetics, which is well, how does the duel actually look? What are the what are the actors or the, the the animated characters actually doing? What kind of fighting styles are we seeing on display? Right, the actual choreography, um, and as we'll, we'll talk about in a few minutes, right, that's very much evolved over the course of the trilogies. And I think the second big element that goes into the aesthetics of a lightsaber duel is setting. So where is the duel actually taking place? What is the physical? Um, space and place that we see, right? This is one part where, you know, other people have pointed this out, have kind of, you know, joked about it. Um, And this is very much not a characteristic that is limited exclusively just to Star Wars, but I think is a trope that you sometimes see in um, the sci-fi genre more generally. Um, 
in, in a lot of different like TV shows and movies and so on. One of the things that kind of sometimes happens in the context of, you know, Star Wars lightsaber duels is we do see these spaces that at a kind of like aesthetic level are very much sort of draw your eye and your attention kind of make for cool shots but then if you kind of sit with the actual space itself and think about it like the space itself seems to actually serve no like real purpose from a kind of like utilitarian level um so like my favorite examples of these and again these are ones that like people have pointed out before like there's like the the throne room in feed right like you get that point where the duel transitions into that like giant chamber where there's like the big energy beams and there's like all the catwalks and then they get to the spot where you got like the ray shielded doors that just like randomly open and close and there's like the big pit and it all makes for a great lightsaber duel but then you kind of sit there and think about like what is this room actually doing in like a day-to-day like practical level like who's going in here what are they doing like why are there these doors here right um, and also I think there's a little bit of this too, um, in the cloud city duel on empire, um, not so much at the start because like we know what the carbon chamber room is for, but as you kind of get on and you get to that point where like, um, they're fighting on that like big spire and there's again that like catwalk and then you're in the big, like, I don't even know what it is, like a silo or something that like Luke falls through. Um, that's another moment where like, again, it makes for great shots, but then you like look at it and it's like, okay, what is this actually doing? Like, why is this here? Who built this? Um, so yeah, the, the you know, you, you get the, the, the lightsaber duels are kind of ripe for these little moments where you can kind of nettle and poke at like Star Wars and the sci-fi genre, but on a more kind of, on a more important note, you know, one of the functions that setting can do, in addition to just like giving you like eye candy, right? Like actually giving you something to, to enjoy seeing is that setting in a lot of cases can add to the stakes and to the grandeur of the actual duel itself, right? So which is to say the actual like narrative of the duel. So like, why is the duel fighting? You know, what, you know, what are the stakes on both sides and so on? That can sometimes be reflected in the actual setting of the lightsaber duel itself. And I think the place where you see this best illustrated in Star Wars, though by no means the only place, is in Revenge of the Sith with the two, you know, simultaneous duels that we get towards the end. You know, Anakin and Obi-Wan on Mustafar and then um, Yoda and Palpatine in the Senate. In both of those places, I think setting is kind of interacting with um, the, the duelists in really kind of important ways, right? And Mustafar as this kind of like allegory for hell and for like... Anakin's transformation, and then in the case with Yoda and Palpatine in the Senate, right, being this kind of commentary on the destruction of um, democracy and the rise of the Empire. So setting can work in that way too, in addition to just like giving you a kind of good spectacle. I think it can also kind of add those story elements or kind of reinforce uh, what is actually being fought about and so on. So yeah, so that's sort of the aesthetics of the duel. What are you actually seeing? What are the characters? What are the actors doing? You know, where are they? Um, and I think also in setting the whole like practical versus computer graphics part definitely also, you know, uh, comes into play without question. So that's aesthetics. And as I mentioned, I think of the two of those, um, I think aesthetics is the more straightforward one. But then there's a second one that I talk about, uh, the second quality of a great lightsaber duel, and that's pathos. So what do I mean by pathos? So pathos, if you translate it, literally means uh, passions. If you translate it a little less literally, it means, you know, emotions. And basically, I use the word pathos in this context really to capture 
you know, what's at stake in the actual duel, right? Because one of the things that you see, if you look at, if, if you look at uh, Star Wars lightsaber duels and you do a kind of close reading, as we'll kind of do a little bit when we get into the top 10, you know, most of the lightsaber duels in Star Wars are, you know, good guys fighting bad guys and, you know, the good guys trying to kill the bad guy, the bad guys trying to kill the good guy, right? There's a kind of straightforwardness at a sort of surface level. But a lot of times there's more happening below the surface, right? It isn't just about killing the good guy or killing the bad guy. And in some cases, in some of the duels, killing or even like wounding isn't even the kind of main purpose of the fighting. And a lot of times it's actually the means to another end, right? There's some greater objective that, you know, one side or the other in the duel is kind of pursuing as they're fighting. Um, and you can actually see a sort of real world parallel to this um, in the past. So if you take that, if you take that dual part of lightsaber duel, right, and you think about dueling as it has occurred um, in the past. Now, th this isn't one of the like Star Wars history episodes that I talked about in the first episode, but we'll do, we'll do a little bit of history here anyway, because I think it's relevant, right? If you look at dueling in the past in human history, right? So, you know, dueling in the West, you know, dates back at least to, you know, you can see it in the medieval period, right, with knights and so on. But if you look at, for example, if you look close at home and let's say the US, right, and you look at, you know, the late 1700s, early 1800s, right, you know, Hamilton came out very recently on Disney Plus, so right, like a lot of people are familiar with, you know, the Burr Hamilton duel and so on. So if you look at like dueling that took place at that time, right? If you look at dueling culture in let's say early America, you know, dueling that took place with with pistols rather than swords. One of the things that you see there in in that dueling culture is that killing wasn't necessarily the purpose. People got killed in duels, right? Alexander Hamilton got killed in duels. Um, Andrew Jackson, the future president, killed lots of people in duels. Um, but that wasn't always necessarily the goal. Even like wounding somebody in a duel wasn't necessarily the goal all the time, right? But really the function of duels, the reason people got into them, it was about defending one's own honor, or in some cases defending somebody else's honor on their behalf, right? It was a way of demonstrating that you were willing to kill and to be killed for the sake of your own kind of personal dignity and integrity, right? Um, so it wasn't always just about actually like murdering or physically wounding somebody, right? Um, and for example, when, um, when you look at the kind of language around duels, the actual like place where a duel um unfolded right where the two kind of combatants met like that was referred to in the kind of terminology there as the field of honor right so it was the place that you went in order to um stand up for your honor like and, 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 to, and to demonstrate your own honor um, and stick up for it and the other kind of element to dueling and you know, in, in this time um, and to dueling culture was that it was all very kind of highly stylized. There were all sorts of kind of rituals that were performed and a certain way to go about performing. Duel. It wasn't just like busting out your pistols and shooting at each other like across a bar or something in a kind of wild west way. It was much more ritualized than that, right? So let's say you were somebody who felt that another person had... Um, 
slighted your honor, that you'd been insulted by somebody, right? They like called your integrity into question. They said you were a morally bad person. They said you were a liar or whatever, right? And you wanted to challenge that person to a duel to, you know, stick up for yourself. Well, the first thing you would do is you would actually issue a challenge in writing, right? So you would actually send them a letter that basically said, you know, on this day, you know, you said this and this, you slandered me and like, I'm challenging you to a duel, you know, meet me in the field and so on, right? So you you actually send that letter off to somebody. The person who got it had the option of either accepting or declining the challenge. Most of the time you had to accept the challenge because if you didn't, you would look, you know, weak and cowardly um, and like you couldn't stand up for yourself. Um, and then once the duel is actually agreed to that it's going to happen, each of the combatants would appoint uh, people who were known as seconds. And these were people who essentially were responsible for making the arrangements for the duel. So they would actually settle, you know, the time and place and all the rules for the actual duel, right? Um, so once the, once the day of the duel comes, right, once everybody comes to the field of honor at the appointed time, um, there was then a whole set of rituals about how the duel would actually take place. So, you know, uh, the, the combatants would start off by, you know, their backs facing each other. They would take a certain, you know, prede uh, predetermined number of steps away from each other, right? That would be set out by the seconds and defined how that would go. And then they would, you know, turn and actually the duel would commence. And again, as I mentioned before, right, this point about how killing and wounding wasn't always the goal, um, that also affected how the duel itself would take place. So sometimes, you know, um, the duelists would fire shots deliberately wide, right? So for the purpose of missing them, like they didn't actually want to hit the other person. Or they just might fire their, you know, their pistols into the air, right? Because again, it wasn't necessarily about inflicting physical harm on another person, right? It was about the person who felt slighted standing up for themselves. And in some ways, the person who, who caused the offense also kind of demonstrating their own honor and integrity and so on. And I think this element, I think I think some of those aspects of dueling culture in the real world are reflected in lightsaber dueling culture, right? Killing is, and wounding are often like key elements to the duels and like like many characters that among those that we'll talk about in the in our top 10 end up getting killed or at least injured as a result of their duels. But there's more kind of happening in the same way that duels in the real world, there was more to it happening than just like actually um, trying to hurt somebody. I think that is also the case with lightsaber duels in Star Wars. And I think particularly the ones that we all consider kind of great lightsaber duels. A lot of those have much more happening below the surface than just the fight that you're seeing on screen. Um, Although we do in some cases in Star Wars, you know, because there are many, many lightsaber duels, if you, you know, if, if you really go through it, uh, there are duels that have, you know, little to no pathos, as we're defining it here, right? Like few emotional stakes and so on. But those generally tend to be the duels that we don't remember all that well, or at least ones that we wouldn't rank among like the greats, right? So like for one example that came up in my mind was um, the duel from Revenge of the Sith between Obi-Wan and Grievous on Utapau, right? Now, on the one hand, there is a lot at stake in this duel in the sense that, like, Grievous is the leader of the droid army and, you know, killing him could bring the war to an end and so on. But there's not much going on, like, between the two of them on a kind of personal level. Like, that duel is much more, like, good guy versus bad guy, you know, compared to some of the other duels and particularly some of the ones that we're going to talk about later in the show. There's a lot fewer kind of 
emotional stakes between General Grievous and Obi-Wan Kenobi than there is, um, as we'll see, you know, between a Luke and a Vader or something like that, right? So that's... So, 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 so that's my sort of way that I kind of understand and look at and think about lightsaber duels, right? In, in these kind of two-pronged ways of the aesthetics of a lightsaber duel and then the pathos, the kind of emotional stake. Let's now get into talking a little bit about the evolution of lightsaber duels, how they have changed across the entire nine-episode arc of the, of the Skywalker saga. Now, it's very clear as you just watch them, right, that the duels in the prequels are not the same as the duels in the original trilogy, and which are not the same as the duels in the sequel trilogy. And I think the reason for these changes, to my mind, are kind of twofold. I think they're a function of two different factors. One of them is, at a practical level, cinematography, right? So the, so the actual, like, ability, what you can actually put on the screen... Uh, what you can ask people to do, what you can kind of fill in in terms of computer graphics, that has definitely impacted um, what sort of duels we have gotten in Star Wars and what they look like and so on. But then the other element that I think is important and shouldn't be overlooked is the actual storytelling element, which is to say that I think that that the fact that the duels look differently says something about you know, the state of the galaxy and where the universe is at the time that we are watching that particular movie or that particular trilogy. So let's sort of get into some of that. So, so starting first with the prequels, right? So obviously cinematography here is really important to understanding, you know, why the prequel duels look like they do, right? You know, in the time between, you know, the release of Return of the Jedi and the release of Phantom Menace, you had all these sorts of advances in computer graphics, um, that crucially meant that, um, you know, Lucas and the folks who were putting together Phantom Menace were no longer limited to what humans could physically do in terms of a lightsaber duel, right? It didn't matter what your actors could do or what your stunt people could do, right? Like you could make them using computer graphics, do things that a normal human body could not do, right? Um, so there's on the one hand, there's that kind of cinematography element and we see that reflected in the prequel duels. But I think the fact that the prequel duels are, to borrow a George Lucasism, faster and more intense than what we see particularly in the OT, I think is also a function of the time period and the state of really both the Jedi and the Sith in this time. You know, as we know, right, the prequels are set in the waning days of the Republic, right? Um, both the Republic and the Jedi Order are kind of on the decline, even if, you know, all the parties aren't necessarily aware of that. But the Jedi Order is still going strong, right? They still have the temple. There is still a whole mechanism for, you know, finding Force-sensitive children across the galaxy and then bringing them in and then making them younglings and then making them Padawans, then graduating them to knights and then eventually masters, right? You've got all that. You've got that whole kind of training architecture that we see, you know, in the prequel films and in the Clone Wars, right, for training Jedi and for, and it's a much kind of longer process, right, starting from when uh, when the kids are very, very young, all the way up through into their adulthood. And then at the same time that you have that, you have the Sith as ascendant, right? You know, the Sith had been, um, at least the Jedi believe, right, extinct for a millennium, that they, they had been kind of underground and are now kind of starting to percolate back to the surface and are starting to um, take on a much more public presence. 
And I think both of those factors, right, that you have this kind of formal mechanism for trading Jedi and the Sith are kind of on the rise and they're kind of itching for power. I think both of those contribute to giving us some of those, you know, faster and more intense duels, right? I think another thing, and this is particularly on the kind of Jedi end, right, the way that the Jedi are fighting the prequels, I think the fact that they're fighting this much more kind of aggressive um, manner compared to what we see, you know, in the later trilogies, I think is also in some ways symbolic of the Jedi kind of straying from their values. You know, Mace Windu has that line in Attack of the Clones where he tells Palpatine, you know, we're keepers of the peace, not soldiers. But of course, as we see, you know, beginning with the Clone Wars and, you know, through the cartoons and into Revenge of the Sith, the the Jedi start taking on much more that kind of soldier or warrior um, uh, role as opposed to kind of keepers of the peace. And I think that's reflected in their actual style of combat. You know, Yoda has that line in The Empire Strikes Back when he's telling Luke, like, a Jedi uses the Force for knowledge and defense. Never attack, right? Um, but we actually do see the Jedi in the prequels using the Force, right, and the light side of the Force for attack in these much more kind of ag aggressive, offensive styles of combat versus like the original trilogy or even the sequel trilogy where it's much more about um, avoiding fighting and being much more defensive. Um, so I think for all those reasons, right, if you think about um, you know, this, this whole notion of, aesthetic, of aesthetics and pathos, I think the prequel duels, even though they undoubtedly have both, there is very much an emphasis in the prequel duels on kind of aesthetics over pathos. Now, if we move into the original trilogy, right? You know, at the start of the original trilogy in A New Hope, we are about 20 years out from Order 66 and the destruction of the Jedi. And... The consequence of that is that there is no longer a Jedi Order. There's no longer a Jedi Academy. And so that means that for Luke in particular, although even, you know, Ezra and Rebels kind of has to deal with this, right? There's a lack of sort of formal training, right? There isn't the kind of progression from young childhood all the way up through adulthood, right? Remember what Yoda says in The Empire um, Strikes Back. You know, says, he is too old. Yes, too old to begin the training, Right. So, like, if Luke had been around during the kind of heyday of the Jedi, right, he might have gotten, you know, picked up when he was very young and then taken through the whole youngling Padawan night stage versus here, like, Yoda has to pick him up when he's, like, 20 or um, however old he is, right, in his early 20s um, and give him a much kind of shorter and more abbreviated training because you don't, the Jedi aren't around. And so I think this kind of contributes to, particularly for Luke, as we see in the original trilogy, a much more kind of haphazard, um, helter-skelter kind of style of fighting, where he's just kind of like picking up skills, in some ways kind of on the job, right? Um, I think another thing that kind of comes through um, in the lightsaber duels of the original trilogy, I would say this is particularly true in A New Hope, but also throughout all three of them, is there is very much this kind of aura of lightsaber dueling as kind of antiquated, right? That it is a style of fighting from a kind of bygone era. Uh, you know, I think about the line from Tarkin uh, in A New Hope when he learns that Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, may be alive and on the Death Star. You know, he tells Vader, the Jedi are extinct, their fire has gone out in the universe. You, my friend, are all that's left of their religion, Right. So there's this notion that like all the ways of the Jedi and even things like fighting with lightsabers, that's all kind of 
even though it's only just been 20 years, like that's all old. That's all, you know, nobody does that anymore. So I think the fact that this, the, the, the style of fighting in the original trilogy is less fluid and less intense in that way, I think is also kind of reflecting that, that like, this is, this is a way that is carried on by only a handful of people left in the galaxy, right? Who are clinging on to these ways. And, you know, as I mentioned, you know, in this, in the way that, you know, the prequel duels put an emphasis on kind of aesthetics over pathos, I think the reverse is true in the OT duels. And this is something we'll talk about um, in the top 10, right? There, there, um, there's a lot more emphasis on the kind of pathos element, on the emotional stakes over sort of um, the eye candy of the duel itself. Although you definitely do get some of that. And that brings us finally into the third act, into the sequel trilogy. So the sequel trilogy has a lot more in common with the original trilogy than it does with the prequels in terms of lightsaber duels. And interestingly enough, you know, something that I sort of picked up on as the, you know, as the sequel trilogy films were coming out, and this is particularly the case after The Last Jedi, was really the fact that the sequel trilogies didn't emphasize the duel all that much as a kind of central element of the story, right? Right down to the point that The Last Jedi, I would argue, does not have a proper lightsaber duel, right? You've got the throne room scene, but that is really two lightsaber wielders fighting the Praetorian guards. They're not fighting each other. And even with the Luke-Kylo confrontation on Krayt, right, their lightsabers never clash, right? It's really just, you know, Kylo waving his um, lightsaber and then ultimately, you know, sticking it through an apparition, right? There's no actual clash of sabers, which I think is really interesting, that de-emphasis. And I think part of the reason for that is that much like in the original trilogy, the formal means of training Jedi are gone once again, right? Luke's academy was um, destroyed, right? So Rey, as with Luke, has to do a lot of kind of on-the-job training, right? Her training is very haphazard. She doesn't start as a little kid, right? She's she's picking it up when she's much older. Um, and so I think uh, in part for that reason, we're not seeing the kind of, you know, fighting that you might see from a prequel Obi-Wan or an Anakin or an Ahsoka or something like that. Um, and I think also part of the function of why we don't see lightsaber duels in the sequel trilogy all that much is because I do think there is this effort, and particularly Rey is the kind of avatar of this, although I guess, you know, Luke does this to some extent, which is that there is some kind of effort to try and return to the original values of the Jedi, right? To kind of reject that turn towards, you know, soldier warriors that happened in the prequels and to kind of go back to some of that original pacifism, right? So I think about, for example, you know, Luke refusing to strike Kylo in The Last Jedi when they confronted on on Krayt or even Rey in The Rise of Skywalker, right? She has moments where on Exegol, where she could use her lightsaber in an offensive fashion, or even defensively, but she chooses not to use the lightsaber. Um, so I think that's um, that that's significant as well. I think is playing into why the lightsaber duels in the sequel trilogy look the way that they do. Um, so yeah, so that's a little bit about the evolution of the lightsaber duel, um, and at least my kind of read and understanding about why the lightsaber duels have sort of changed over time the way that they have. Now let's get into the really the kind of main act, which is the top 10. So these are my 10 favorite duels in order across the Star Wars canon. So we will begin with number 10. 
And that one comes to us courtesy of The Force Awakens. That is Kylo and Rey on Starkiller Base. This, I think, really is a top 10 duel in Star Wars. You know, obviously it starts with Kylo fighting uh, Finn, like Finn wielding the Skywalker saber. And, you know, there was, in the run-up to The Force Awakens, and there were some people who have subsequently um, brought up, you know, uh, problems with this or issues that they've had with it, which is that like a lot of the like marketing around the force awakens really kind of set up, made it look like Finn was going to be the kind of main Jedi character or the lightsaber wielder. And then like the movie itself does a kind of like fake out where it's not really him. It's Ray. Um, but you do see him kind of briefly fighting, um, Kylo before he's sort of taken out of the duel. Um, and then you get the first really great moment in this duel, which I think is also just an all-time great Star Wars moment, which is when Kylo reaches out with the Force to get the Skywalker saber, which is, you know, stuck in the snow, and it starts kind of moving a little bit, and then it kind of flies out, and you think it's going to go to him, but then it flies out into Rey's outstretched hand. And that is absolutely perfect A+. Love it, love it, love it. Such a great moment. Um, I know a lot of people, you know, when they've talked about uh, going to see Force Awakens for the first time, they thought it was going to be Luke standing there, right? Like he was reaching to get his own lightsaber and he was going to duel um, his former student. But this, in my opinion, is much, much, much better that it was Rey. Um, you know, it is coming to her at a moment that she needs it. You know, it is a huge moment just in kind of Star Wars itself, you know. Particularly, you know, I've I've heard a lot of, you know, female Star Wars fans have talked about how that was really an important moment for them to see a kind of leading female character in a live action Star Wars movie wielding a lightsaber for the first time. You know, obviously we had had female Jedi in the prequels, but they were largely relegated to the background. We didn't really get to know any of them. You know, in the animated series, you start seeing more of them. You obviously have Ahsoka. Uh, there, but again, that's animated. It's not live action. So to see it in a kind of mainline Star Wars film, uh, uh, a a woman character wielding a lightsaber in combat was unquestionably a huge deal and really really important moment for Star Wars. I think for all fans, but especially for female Star Wars fans. Um, and then of course they fight. You know, as I was saying before, with you know Ray's training, it's her her style fighting is very kind of haphazard. She's really just trying to stay alive. And then we get to that great moment where kind of Kylo has her pinned down and he's, you know, telling her, like, you know, you need a teacher. I can show you the ways of the Force. And then ultimately the turn for Rey happens when she kind of pauses, she quiets her mind, she closes her eyes, you know, lets the Force kind of flow through her. And then she kind of goes on the attack, right? Uh, she, she goes on the offensive, she beats Kylo back, and then ultimately defeats him, right? Gives him that big gash across his eye. Um so yeah, so I think that's a that, that, that's a great duel from the sequel trilogy. I think a really, really important moment in Star Wars overall, and that's why I'm, I'm putting it on my number 10 uh, spot. So, number 9. Comes to us from the very first movie in the Star Wars franchise, the very first lightsaber duel. Obi-Wan and Vader on the Death Star, right? The Master and Apprentice rematch. Right, for all the way back from Revenge of the Sith. Now, this duel, I think, for you know, a lot of people in jest has been kind of ribbed for being representative of the kind of original trilogy style of lightsaber duels, right? The fact that it is much kind of slower and more paced and so on. And, you know, I think it's particularly, you know, 
there's even it's, it's even a little bit jarring when you like set it not just against like let's say revenge of the sith but even like rogue one right you get that great ending scene where vader is like slicing and dicing through the rebel troopers and then like a few days later you know in the in the movie timeline he's there like gently like poking his old master with a lightsaber um and there's even um there's there was a fan edit that came out a couple years ago um if i can if i can find it on youtube i'll throw the link into the episode description where somebody basically like recut or re-edited that um the obi-wan vader duel in a much more kind of prequel style where it's much like faster and more intense but personally i really like the duel as it is i think it does really kind of capture an important moment both in kind of the history of filmmaking in terms of star wars and then also as i talked about before like the state of the galaxy at this time i like how this duel gets paralleled in the last jedi with luke and kylo right where luke is basically saying in the obi-wan position you know he gives a version of like the strike me down line you know where he says you know strike me down in anger and i will always be uh, be with you just like your father and you know obi-wan tells vader uh, you know, if you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Like, I really, really like that parallel that gets set up um, and the way that, like, you know, Kylo is taking the Vader position and, you know, Luke is taking the Obi-Wan role there. Um, I think that's really, really great. You know, ever since um, ever since we got the, that official announcement about the Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, miniseries on Disney+, Plus, and even when I guess it was still just like a rumor and speculation... There has been a lot of chatter about whether we are going to see a prior meeting between Obi-Wan and Vader um, on that show. Um, you know, there's there's some people who have said, like, they'd like to see it and trying to make the case that it wouldn't necessarily contradict what we see in A New Hope. I'm in the camp that I do think there's a very good chance that Vader shows up in the Obi-Wan series. I think that's a kind of gimme, given that it is Obi-Wan Kenobi. But I'm in the camp that says I do not think they will actually have a face-to-face confrontation. Maybe there might be some sort of sensing, at least maybe Obi-Wan sensing Vader or something like that. But I do not think they're going to have a pre-A New Hope showdown. Um, and I have a couple of reasons for thinking of this. So first is obviously the, the points in A New Hope itself. You know, So you know Vader saying a presence I've not felt since or then when... Later on, when he says, you know, when I left you, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. I think both of those things kind of hint at that the last time they saw each other was Mustafar. But even actually aside from that, there was a moment in Star Wars Rebels that I was only cognizant of uh, recently when I was doing a Rebels rewatch. So this is in season two, and it's after Vader senses that Ahsoka is still alive. And he goes and he basically conference calls with Palpatine. And, you know, they're talking about the fact that Anakin Skywalker's apprentice is still alive. And then Palpatine at one point says that Ahsoka could potentially lead them to other Jedi who are surviving in the galaxy. And then Vader replies, such as Kenobi? And Palpatine replies, perhaps if he lives. So that exchange would seem to imply that at the time that Rebels is taking place, and I forget exactly, but I think it's something like three to five years uh, prior to A New Hope. I think it's right about there. That exchange would seem to suggest that at that point, neither Vader nor Palpatine know that Obi-Wan is alive. Um, now, this is Star Wars, and Star Wars is, if nothing else, is good at retconning. So there's all sorts of ways that could get retconned. It could be like, 
oh, Obi-Wan and Vader had a prior encounter and Vader thought he might have killed him. Or, oh, Vader knows Obi-Wan's alive and he's just like psyching out the Emperor and playing dumb. But I think all of the evidence in canon as it currently stands points to the Death Star being the first time that Obi-Wan and Vader see each other since Mustafar, since Revenge of the Sith. Um, so I'm going to plant my flag on that prediction that I do not think there will be a meetup between the two of them in the Kenobi series. All right, so we've got now in the list, we've got a couple of run of uh, duels from the animated series, because you should never sleep on the animated series. There's some great Star Wars moments and great characters um, in the animated series, some of the best in the entire franchise. So we will begin with number eight. which comes from Star Wars Rebels. It is Obi-Wan and Maul on Tatooine, the twin sons duel. Now, I do have plans to, at some point later on, do a Rebels appreciation episode. So I'm going to save a kind of larger discussion of the twin sons episode for the Rebels episode. Uh, I'm not going to get into like the other stuff that happens in that episode. But I do want to talk a little bit about this duel itself. Now... As I mentioned in the first episode, I did not watch Star Wars Rebels when it was airing. But I do know, you know, having looked back, that this duel was kind of controversial when it first premiered. Um, it was seen by a lot of people as anticlimactic, given how short it is. And even I remember when I watched it for the first time, you know, when Obi-Wan goes for, like, the death blow and he chops uh, Maul's lightsaber in half and Maul kind of staggers out. I remember watching that and being like, hang on, did I miss something? Like, that's it? Like, he's done? Like, there's there's not more to it? Um, so, yeah, so it, so it, it kind of rubbed some people the wrong way a little bit when it first came out. But I think, as with a lot of things in Star Wars, I think its reputation has aged and improved over time. And for that reason, I'm putting it in the top ten list. Um, I think the kind of banter back and forth between Obi-Wan and Maul before the start of the duel is really, really good. You know, uh, Maul, Maul saying to Obi-Wan, like, look, look what you've become, a rat in the desert. And then Obi-Wan replying, look what I have risen above. I think that's a great exchange. And personally for me, uh, to go back to talking about the Kenobi series, I really want the Kenobi series to be built around that line from Obi-Wan, right? When he says, look what I have risen above. Um, I want that Kenobi series, I want it to start with Obi-Wan at a very low point in his exile, right? That he is totally despondent about what happened, feeling that he has, you know, let down his apprentice, he let down Qui-Gon, he's feeling kind of despondent about the Jedi and how they were betrayed, but that ultimately over the course of the miniseries, he kind of has to learn to pull himself together in order to be there for Luke when Luke ultimately needs him to train him as a Jedi. Um, and then another great Obi-Wan line that comes just a little bit after that is, you know, him saying, if you define yourself by your power to take life, your desire to dominate, to possess, then you have nothing. And this is a really great line, particularly when you think about the last time Obi-Wan and Maul would have seen each other, right? And that would have been back in the Clone Wars, um... It was on Mandalore, right? Maul had just killed Satine, right? The love of Obi-Wan's life um, in an attempt to kind of inflict this wound on Obi-Wan and get him to sort of fall to his hate and anger and so on. And now you see, you know, fast forward 20 years and you see 
Obi-Wan there basically telling Maul, like, if you're all about just, like, dominating people and taking life, then, like, you've got nothing. Like, that's, that, that like, that isn't worth anything, that power, right? Um, so I think that's a kind of, that, that's a quote when you kind of compare the two of them um, in the series, just how much Obi-Wan has kind of evolved since we've seen him um, in the prequels. You know, Sam Witwer, who voices Maul on both the Clone Wars and Rebels, has done a great kind of analysis and breakdown of this duel. Again, I'll try and find a link to it and throw that in the episode description. You know, he talks about how, you know, Obi-Wan kind of shifts his stance across the duel where, like, he first sort of takes the kind of young Obi-Wan stance where he's got his, like, arm out and, like, his lightsaber's kind of behind him. Then he switches to, like, the Qui-Gon stance where he's, like, like the like the 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 two-handed grip and the lightsaber is kind of off to his side and then he shifts to the Ben Kenobi stance right which is like again two-handed grip but it's kind of out in front of him and that sort of reflecting Obi-Wan's own evolution right that he's kind of going from his kind of younger more brash way of fighting to emulating his master to then ultimately becoming himself right his own style and his own form and, you know, as I said, the duel is kind of controversial because of how quick and abbreviated it is. But I think there's a deep and important significance to the fact that the duel is so quick. I think the fact that Obi-Wan is able to so swiftly defeat Maul really shows how much more advanced he's become since the last time of their confrontation, right? Because when you look at, you know, Obi-Wan and Maul in The Clone Wars, you know, they are pretty much, they're pretty close to equals, right, in terms of their actual fighting and abilities. But then by the time you get to um, the Rebels, right, Obi-Wan is just in a totally different, like, plane, right? Like, Maul has continued to sort of dwell in anger and hatred. He hasn't grown. He hasn't evolved. He hasn't changed. Whereas Obi-Wan is sort of reconciled. He's, he's kind of found inner peace and he's moved on and he's just like, it's not even the same league anymore, Um and so that's why I think he's able to sort of best Maul so quickly. And then, of course, the duel kind of finally ends with Obi-Wan kind of cradling Maul in his arms. And then we get that kind of very kind of peculiar exchange between the two of them about the Chosen One. This kind of implication that, like, Luke is the Chosen One. Um, and again, I think I'll probably put a pin in that and table it until the Rebels episode and get more into it then. But yeah, that's the number eight duel. Now we go to number seven. comes from the Clone Wars. It is Maul, Savage, and Sidious on Mandalore. So recently, of course, we had the release of Clone Wars Season 7, right? We finally saw the, the proper ending to the show. And I have been doing a rewatch recently of the Clone Wars. I am at this moment on Season 6, so I'm closing in on Season 7. And I am still personally of the opinion, again, this could change, um, that season five is the best season of Clone Wars and The Lawless is the best episode of The Clone Wars, which comes out of season five. Um, again, as I said, that could change. I could definitely see my favorite episode changing or best episode. Um, I could see it becoming one of the Siege of Mandalore episodes. I don't think my favorite season will change. I think, I think five is just very, very strong overall. So I think that's, I think five is kind of, rooted there in my head as best season 
But I think Lawless is just, I remember watching Lawless recently, a couple days ago, and it's just like, it's so, such, so good as an episode. Um, you know, even though he is the big bad of the franchise and he's like a terrible person in so many ways, it really was great to see a kind of like force unleashed version of Sidious, right? When he like flies in and, you know, in the shuttle and then like the two Mandalorians try to stop him and he just like raises his hand and like force chokes them simultaneously. Uh, that's super cool. Uh, we get some great Palpatine lines, I think, out of this. You know, when he um, when he points out how Maul is kind of trying to deceive him, and he goes, you know, you have become a rival, and he like force pushes uh, Maul and Savage like up against the um, up against the wall of the throne room, and um, you know he has you know there's that little speech at the very end where he's kind of like close to close to defeating Maul. You know when he says. When he talks about, like, there can only be two, like, you are no longer my apprentice. And then he ends, like, you have been replaced. I'm like, it's so good. Um, and then, of course, the duel itself is just really, really good, right? Where we get to see, you know, Sidious wielding two lightsabers against um, Savage and Maul. Although one thing I've always wondered about that duel that's kind of stuck out to me, and I'm curious if anyone else has sort of cued on this also, which is that when Maul... When, when the fight... When the duel first starts, Maul is just using his, like, half-red lightsaber... But then once Sidious kind of kills Savage and takes him out of the duel, he then at that point busts out the Darksaber. And I always kind of wonder, like, why does Maul just bust out the Darksaber from the jump? And then it's like, it's four blades against two. Like, they might have actually had a chance to best Sidious in that moment. Um, so I thought that was like a weird little detail. And like, maybe there's some answer that I'm like not aware of. But yeah, that's really interesting to me. So for a very long time, the Maul-Savage-Sidious duel was, for me, the best duel in the Clone Wars. But, much like Maul as Sidious' Apprentice, it has been replaced by number six. Ahsoka and Maul on Mandalore. This is such a great duel in the Siege of Mandalore. Like, you know, it is the closing duel of the Clone Wars, and, like, of course it is the closing duel of the Clone Wars. Like, how could it not be, right? Um, it is so great that we see these two characters face off, and I think it's really important that we do for kind of two reasons. You know, first, um, the fact that I think, arguably, th they are the two greatest characters to come out of the Clone Wars. Um, I think Rex is there kind of nibbling at the heels in, like, the number three slot, but I think they are kind of firmly ensconced as the two best characters to come out of the Clone Wars, Ahsoka and Maul. And I think also what's significant about the two of them facing off is that Maul and Ahsoka very much parallel each other, right? They are both outcasts from their respective orders. Um, the Sith in the case of Maul and the Jedi in the case of Ahsoka. And they both sort of embody the flaws of the Jedi and the Sith, respectively. You know, I remember as um, as the Siege of Mandalore episodes were, were coming out, I remember thinking about that scene in Revenge of the Sith, um, the opera scene, where... Palpatine and Anakin are talking about, you know, the Sith and the dark side and everything. And Palpatine has this line where he tells Anakin, the Sith and the Jedi are alike in almost every way. And I remember thinking about how, like, it, close to the same time that Palpatine is saying that, all the way on the other side of the galaxy, his former apprentice and Anakin's former apprentice are facing off, and they are in a lot of ways embodying the sentiment that Palpatine is talking about there, right? They are both kind of living proof of how both the Sith and the Jedi at this time are treating people instrumentally and are willing to kind of cast aside people, right? 
so I thought that was a really, really kind of interesting um, parallel that's happening between like the movies and the shows. Um, of course, we get that great parallel with The Last Jedi, right, where Maul kind of holds out his hand to Ahsoka to get uh, to get her to join him. And you get that great like breaking glass and the glass fragments are kind of like floating around them. Um, and I think it's really interesting. Like I did not see this coming. I think a lot of people did not see this coming, which is the fact that like Ahsoka initially accepts Maul's offer to join him. Like, I think that's really, really interesting. Like, I think everyone expected, you know, like with Ray or with Luke or whatever, that he, she was just going to say, like, no, I don't want anything to do with you. But she says yes first, right? But then she ultimately refuses when she thinks that Maul is lying about Anakin being um, groomed to be Sidious' apprentice, right? Um, and I think another thing kind of related to that that's really cool that's not just in the in this particular episode, the Shadow Apprentice, um, but is um, throughout the kind of Siege of Mandalore arc, is is Maul's palpable fear of Palpatine that you see kind of throughout the whole Mandalore arc there, you know, where when we see him last time in season five of the Clone Wars, he is, you know, trying to build up his criminal empire and he is um, thinking about, you know, trying to go toe-to-toe with the other powers in the galaxy. But then, you know, post his duel with Sidious, post being captured and escaping, he's not just utterly terrified of Sidious, right? Like, he sees that the Jedi and the Republic are about to fall, that a new order is about to rise, and he's just trying to, like, figure out how he's going to survive, right? And kind of carve out his own little sanctuary in the midst of that. So I think, I, I really like that they introduced that detail from Maul um, in Season 7. And, of course, in terms of the actual fight itself, um, I love that they use mocap, that they use the motion capture, for both Maul and Ahsoka, I think it really comes through very, very well. I think you can very, uh, very clearly tell that the movements are organic, right? That it is an actual person who is making those moves as opposed to being 100% animation. Um, so yeah, it's a great, great duel, a great way to kind of kick, to kind of send off Clone Wars. I'm really, really glad we finally got it on screen. So that is the bottom five of the top 10 list, we've gotten uh, 10 through 6. Now we get into the top 5, starting with number 5. The best duel in animated Star Wars. From Star Wars Rebels, it is Ahsoka and Vader on Malachor. Uh, the Twilight of the Apprentice duel. Now, studious observers of the logo for a larger view of the Force we'll notice that there are two lightsabers flanking the actual title of the podcast. And it's funny, after the first episode dropped, my best friend who listened to it, she texted me and she was like, uh, she was telling me that her, her fiancé wanted to know why there was a white lightsaber in the logo. And I was like, yes, like someone noticed it, right? So if you go look at the logo for Larger View of the Force, you will see two lightsabers. One of them is red, one of them is white. Right, and those are stand-ins for my two favorite characters in all of Star Wars. Right, the red one is for Darth Vader. He is my number one favorite character in all of Star Wars. That is always and forever. That will never ever change. It is Darth Vader on the top, and then the white lightsaber is for my number two favorite character in all of Star Wars, and that is Ahsoka Tano. Her white lightsabers are definitely my favorite lightsabers in all of Star Wars. I mentioned before, we'll be doing a 
uh, Rebels episode at some point in the future. So I'm going to save a kind of fuller discussion of Twilight of the Apprentice for then. Um, but suffice it to say for right now that that episode very much hits very differently post uh, season seven of the Clone Wars, in particular the Siege of Mandalore arc. Um, I did a Rebels rewatch um, right after season seven ended. And when I got to this episode, there were there were a number of little moments that I just saw with totally different eyes after after having seen how Clone Wars finally wrapped up. Um, and among those is, of course, this, uh, this duel itself, you know, much like the Obi-Wan uh, Vader duel in A New Hope, right? This is a reunion duel, right? This is the first time that Ahsoka and Anakin slash Vader have seen each other since they were on the Star Destroyer in that first episode of the Siege of Mandalore arc when uh, when Obi-Wan and Anakin get the news that the Chancellor has been kidnapped and he is and they have to go uh, back to Coruscant to fight Grievous. And then Ahsoka goes with Rex back to Mandalore uh, to help out Bo-Katan and to capture Maul. Um, and I love I, I, I love the kind of uh, verbal fight that the two of them have between each other um, just before they actually start um, the the duel. Like when you know when when Vader says you know it was foretold that you would be here. A long-awaited meeting has come at last. And then. Um, you know, Vader saying Anakin Skywalker was weak. Uh, I destroyed him. And then I started saying, I will avenge his death. And then right here gets me one of my favorite exchanges in all of Star Wars. When, when Vader says, revenge is not the Jedi way. And then I start going, I am no Jedi. I absolutely love that part. It, it gets me so pumped up every single time I watch it. And then she turns on those two, um, uh, those lightsabers and then Vader activates his and they go in for the fight. Um, and then at the very end, I think that that moment where, you know, Ahsoka damages um, Vader's mask and she's able to, like, see into his mask for the first time, uh, uh, for the first time I think is such a powerful, symbolic moment, right? Like, in, in some ways, it is like the final confirmation that she needed to know that the person beneath the mask is, in fact, her former master Anakin Skywalker and I love the fact that when uh, like when Vader gets damaged and then he calls out Ahsoka that it's Matt uh, that it's Matt Lanter's voice it's not the James Earl Jones Darth Vader voice it's the voice of Anakin Skywalker from the Clone Wars um and she sort of sees his one eye I do find this is like this is kind of a, a like a, a funny little detail um that amuse me which is the fact that Vader in this moment that you when, when you look into the mask he still has his eyebrows and like as I remember like this is one of the things that like in between like one of the versions of the special editions that um that uh, uh, Anakin's eyebrows got removed like because uh, he has them in like the original cut of Return of the Jedi but then if you look at like the subsequent special editions he doesn't have them anymore um and they basically I, I think the rationale they did that for was to reflect the fact that he had been burned on Mustafar but then you look in this um you you see in this moment when you look into the mask he still has like the uh, he still has his eyebrows which i just like it's it's like a stupid meaningless point but i always find kind of funny um but it's really just a very like heartbreaking scene right when um when ahsoka says you know i won't leave you not this like i won't leave you not this time um and it's sort of reflecting the guilt that ahsoka has felt um that she was responsible for abandoning her master and then ultimately, you know, his turn to the dark side, right? She has that vision earlier in season two where, like, Anakin is berating her for abandoning uh, for abandoning him and, uh, and essentially blaming 
her for him becoming Darth Vader. And you can really see in that moment, right, when Vader is kind of looking through the mask, that there is this moment, you get this feeling that Vader might be brought back into the light, right? That he's kind of right on the knife's edge um, as Ahsoka is kind of reaching out to him um, and saying that she's there for him now in a way that she hadn't been uh, before. But then, right, then he goes, then you will die. And he ignites the lightsaber and the moment passes, right? And it's sort of a moment where he commits, recommits, right, to being on the dark path, right, to being Darth Vader, and they duel again. Um, and I would say another thing about this duel is, like, this is arguably some of Kevin Kiner's best musical work that we see uh, him do in the animated series. Outside of, I think now there's very strong competition from uh, Clone Wars Season 7. I think there's some great music in the Siege of Mandalore arc, um, particularly his tracks of the last episode, the um, the victory and death theme, um, and the track called Bearing the Dead at the very end of um the series finale but this one has a great if you go on to the um if you find the season two soundtrack and for some reason they haven't released like the full soundtracks for rebels they, i think they've only done the first two seasons they never released three and four but if you go to season if you go to the season two soundtrack you will find there's basically a there's a trio of tracks for the um ahsoka vader duel so you've got uh, anakin and ahsoka is the first one then you have uh, where the sun sails and the moon walks and then the final one that's called it's over now um, and those are incredibly uh, powerful and beautiful, and I love them. I love them a lot. And then I also like the final shot of that episode of Twilight of the Apprentice, where you see um, uh, Vader exiting the Sith Temple, and he's like sort of he's, he's kind of limping from the damage that he's inflicted, and you hear him kind of like he's got that wheeze um, when 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 his helmet or his breathing system has been broken, and. What I love about that shot in particular, and then you also see the you see the morai, you see the the bird that is basically that is a kind of um, avatar for Ray or oh, for sorry for avatar for um, for Ahsoka uh, back from the Mortis arc. And what I love about that shot that you see of, of Vader coming out of the temple is because it's, it works kind of in two ways because it's it's him both literally and figuratively broken, right? Like on the one hand, his suit has been damaged. And he's not kind of functioning at full capacity. But at the same time, it is a kind of commentary on the state of his own soul, right? The fact that he has um, tried to kill his former apprentice. The fact that he had, had this moment where he could turn away from the dark path but chose to stay on it. So it's, just, it's, it's this great little moment that just illustrates how broken um Anakin really is at this point in time both in his body um and in his spirit and as I mentioned uh, just now right in that same scene we see the Morai um and that is something that gets paralleled in the final scene of the Clone Wars right when uh, when Vader finds Ahsoka's lightsaber um and he looks up and he sees the Morai flying overhead um so there's that I, I I like that they brought that back in season seven of the Clone Wars just sort of emphasizing that parallel um with the with the end of twilight of the apprentice so that's so that's it for the animated series we got there was a good um um for, uh, run of four different uh duels from the animated series on our list now we get to number four which comes to us from revenge of the sith that is the battle of the heroes anakin and obi-wan on mustafar 
I think this duel, I remember this, you know, growing up with the prequels and kind of waiting for Revenge of the Sith. Um, I think this was a duel, I think that was anticipated in a way that I don't think any really any Star Wars duel has been before or since. You know, I think a lot of Star Wars fans were waiting for this since A New Hope, right? Like we had basically known, you know, watching through the original trilogy and then up through the prequels, you know, through Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones, that Anakin and Obi Wan had had this kind of climactic showdown, and we just sort of been waiting for this final piece, waiting for Revenge of the Sith um, to ultimately see you know, master and apprentice fight each other. Um, and then ultimately, you know, Anakin transforming into um, Darth Vader as we know him in the original trilogy. Um, and as I talked about earlier, when I was talking about sort of aesthetics of lightsaber duels, and I was talking about setting, right, this duel, like the like the Yoda-Palpatine duel in Revenge of the Sith, really illustrates the value of setting, right? Mustafar is very much this kind of stand-in for, um, for hell, right, with all the lava and and the volcanoes and all of that. You know, some people have kind of like poked fun at that, right? They've, you know, some people said maybe that's a little too on the nose and maybe it is, but I love it. Like, I think Mustafar is a really, I think it's a really cool setting to have a lightsaber duel. You know, I, uh, I, um, I, I like all the shots where, you know, they're on the, like they're on that big arm for like the shield generator and then it breaks off and then they're climbing up on it and then they're doing like, and then you've got like the, like the the um the waterfall of lava that like Anakin has to jump off from like I really like the setting I'm on record for that um it's got a great lead in also like the whole conversation on the landing platform right the the confrontation between Anakin and Padme where she's trying to convince him to uh, uh basically kind of leave the path of the dark side and run away with her and you kind of see Anakin's own delusions of grandeur where he's talking about how powerful he's become and talking about overthrowing the Chancellor and him and Padme ruling. Um, you can really just sort of see in that moment like how much he's kind of uh, turn, turned away from who he once was and gone on this other path and sort of Padme realizing that he's sort of beyond saving in that moment and he's become a different person. And then him ultimately turning on Padme and force choking her um, and then after that, right, the, the, the Obi-Wan um, um, Anakin conversation, which I think has a number of, like, great kind of powerful lines and exchanges, right, you know, where, where Anakin you know, says to Obi-Wan, he says, you turned her against me. And then Obi-Wan saying, you have done that yourself. Um, you know, him going, like, you will not take her from me. And then, and then Obi-Wan saying, your anger and your lust for power have already done that. Um, I think that I, I, I think that whole conversation between uh, between the two of them, you know, the prequels and even Revenge of the Sith, you know, they, they get knocked for some of the like clunky dialogue and there is clunky writing in the prequels. But I think that exchange between Anakin and Obi Wan, I think that is a plus like Star Wars writing, like that is some great dialogue. And also apart from the dialogue, there is great music in this duel, right? You've got those two tracks, right, where it starts off with Anakin versus Obi Wan. Um, and then it ultimately goes into the um, into the uh, the Battle of the Heroes track. And let me just say right now, I'm going to do at some point a Star Wars music episode, but I'm just going to say now for the record that the Revenge of the Sith soundtrack slaps. Like, it is truly the no-skips album of Star Wars. Like, John Williams did not hold back back when he thought that this was going to be the final bit of Star Wars music he was going to write. Like, there's some incredible music on Revenge of the Sith. Um... And the music that we get for this Anakin Obi-Wan duel uh, is no exception. 
you also do see um there are in this duel like some of the examples of what i was talking about before uh with the prequels where it's like very highly uh, very highly stylized you know like i think like one moment that that definitely comes in for some mocking from people is that bit where Anakin and Obi-Wan are fighting in like the Separatist conference room and they do like the lightsaber flips where they're kind of just like, um, they're, they're like, I, I don't even know how to describe it exactly, but they're basically like making circles of their own lightsabers, but they're not even attacking each other. It's just this like, just like peacock feather display or whatever. Like it's not even clear like what purpose it's serving. So there's like, a, there's a little bit in that Anakin Obi-Wan duel where like you see some of the like things that people chuckle about about uh, the prequel duels it's definitely there and then of course the kind of climax the crescendo of the anakin obi-wan duel right which is um you know obi-wan on the hill him saying you know it's it's over anakin i have the high ground which is of course one of among the most memed moments from revenge of the sith and i think revenge of the sith probably uh is the most memed star wars movie like there's so many like bits and pieces from um uh, from that movie that people latch on to, right? Like there's, you know, Obi-Wan, I have the high ground. Um, uh, the Obi-Wan early in the movie, right? Hello there, General Kenobi. Um, my personal favorite, Kiati Mundi going, what about the droid attack on the Wookiees? Great line, right? There's a lot of just, uh, there, there, there's a lot of memeable moments that have come out of Revenge of the Sith. And then of course, ultimately Anakin, um, oh, sorry, Obi-Wan uh, wounding Anakin, right? Cutting off his legs and his one remaining arm. Um, and that's just an incredibly, again, when we when we talk about sort of great Star Wars writing in the prequels, it's also here, right? It's at the beginning of this duel and it's at the end of this duel, right? When Obi-Wan is talking about, you know, uh, you were the chosen one. You were supposed to bring balance to the force, not leave it in darkness. Anakin shouting, I hate you, Um and then, you know, um, you know uh, Obi-Wan saying, you know, you were my brother, I loved you. You know, for all the, like, again, as I said, for all the crap that the prequels take about, you know, clunky writing or, you know, for the crap that Hayden has taken for acting, this is an incredibly well-written, well-acted scene. And, I, like, I will not accept alternate opinions to that. I think it is an incredible moment. Um, and it's it, it's just, it, it, it's you, you feel the emotion on both sides, both uh, Obi-Wan's heartbreak at the loss of his apprentice and his brother and then Anakin's own sort of anger and hatred and the way that that sort of fuels him to ultimately stay alive after he is both, um, bo both has his like remaining organic limbs cut off and then is, you know, burnt to a crisp um, and then is found by Palpatine and taken back to be transformed into Darth Vader. So yeah, like I said, I think a highly anticipated duel. And ultimately, I'm going to say, I think it delivered on that anticipation. I think we get a great um, backstory and um, into how um, Anakin ultimately completes his transformation into um, Darth Vader. And I think it adds so many layers to that ultimate confrontation again on, in A New Hope on the Death Star. When, when Vader is saying, you know, when I left you, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. I think like there's th that, that is that, that is all so much deeper um, and more significant thanks to this duel um, in Revenge of the Sith. So I think it was really, really well done. I think it's a high point of that movie and a high point of the prequels. So now we get into number three. comes to us from Return of the Jedi. It is the Luke and Vader rematch on the Death Star 2. Now, listeners, I have to make a minor confession, and 
hopefully this is not going to get my podcast canceled um, a mere two episodes in. But I personally am not the biggest fan of Return of the Jedi. I know there are lots of Star Wars fans who love it, for whom it is their favorite Star Wars movie. And, you know, bless those people. Good for you. If you really love it and you think it's great, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. Uh, but for me, it's it's never sort of been up there. For me, it's always been a kind of middle-tier Star Wars movie. There are parts of it that I don't think uh, particularly work or in some cases haven't aged very well. And some of that I may talk about in later episodes. That being said, I love everything that happens on the Death Star. Everything between, you know, Palpatine, Vader, and Luke. I think it's just phenomenal. The fight is great. Um I love the I love the entire preamble to that duel uh, where, you know, Palpatine and Luke are kind of going back and forth with one another. Palpatine is, um, you know, goading Luke to um, strike him down, right, to complete his uh, turn to the dark side, which now I think post Rise of Skywalker, I think t- that scene takes on new meaning. Um, I think for a long time, we just sort of assumed this was Palpatine just trying to get under Luke's skin, right? Kind of like knowing what was going to happen, which is that Vader was going to step in. But I think now that everything that we've seen with Rise of Skywalker and all the like essence transfer stuff that that's in that movie, I think there is maybe a kind of deeper significance that you can now kind of read and retcon into that scene. Um, and much like a, much like a bunch of the the duels that we've talked about on this list so far, there are just some great lines and great little like moments of dialogue in this duel. You know when, uh, you know, very much unlike um, their previous con- confrontation on Cloud City, Luke is very much not trying to actually fight or hurt his father. You know, at least initially, we'll get to what happens towards the end of the duel. But you know. Uh, Luke at one moment leaps away and he says, you know, I will not fight you. And then Vader has a great line where he says, if you will not fight, then you will meet your destiny. And he like throws the lightsaber and you get like the crescendo of the of the Emperor's theme. Like that's a great line. And of course, the, the, the line that so many Star Wars fans love, right, which is, you know, Luke saying at the end, you know, I am a Jedi like my father before me. Um, and then Palpatine going, so be it, Jedi. Oh, so good. Like, I love that scene in particular. I love that shot that you get of Palpatine in that moment, you know, when Luke has kind of rejected him and you just see kind of Palpatine standing there and he's like very stoic. Obviously, his face is just uh, totally like um, nondescript, but you can just see like, like underneath that, you can see the kind of like rage that is like boiling inside of Palpatine as he's realized that like his whole plan to lure Luke to the dark side um, has fallen apart. So I just there's, there's just some great lines, some great moments of dialogue um, in that duel. That duel also has one of my favorite shots in all of Star Wars. One of my favorite just like uh, moments of cinematography, and that is that, and it is that left to right kind of tracking shot as Luke is attacking Vader. Right, the camera sort of like following them as they're going from like underneath the Emperor's platform over to the um, over to the pit, um, over to the shaft. Like that's a like that, that's just a great shot, and you've got that variant of the Emperor's theme playing in the gra- in the background. It's just absolutely perfect. You feel all the emotion. You feel everything that Luke is feeling in that moment. It's absolutely perfect. Like I said, one of my favorite shots in all of Star Wars. It's just great. Um, and to sort of focus in on that moment of the duel, that moment when when Luke kind of goes on the offensive and ultimately kind of defeats Vader, I think that moment is 
gotten new significance um, and importance in recent years, particularly with the release of The Last Jedi. So this is something I want to get into. It's a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's important. Um, you know, one of the complaints that you saw with The Last Jedi, um, and this was true even of people who like, are actually fans of The Last Jedi, not just with like the people who say, like, this is the worst Star Wars movie ever. You know, like, I'm not even sort of necessarily referring to those people. But one of the things, one of the issues that you saw some Star Wars fans and even some Last Jedi fans bringing up with that movie was um, the characterization of Luke. And particularly that flashback scene that we get where Luke almost kills Ben and he turns on his lightsaber against him. And there's a lot of people sort of um, who were complaining or kind of raising concerns that this was out of character for Luke. That it was making him seem too um, homicidal and... Um, bloodless and like uh, that you know the, um, that Luke as we knew him wouldn't be somebody who would almost like murder his own nephew uh, but I think if we look at if we look at that scene in conjunction with what we see in Return of the Jedi with Luke I think Return of the Jedi proves otherwise I think we actually see a very clear through line from Return of the Jedi Luke to the last Jedi Luke and the way I want to show this the way I want to talk about this is I'm, I, I, I want to take Luke's dialogue from from the Last Jedi, basically his own um, narration of what happened that night between him and Ben, and I want to basically just kind of graft it onto what we see in Return of the Jedi, and I think you get some really interesting results when you do that. So let's take a look at, take a look at what Luke says in the Last Jedi. So he starts off by saying a bunch of things that are really kind of specific to the moment of Ben Solo. You know, he says, I saw, I saw darkness. I sensed it building in him. You know, Snoke had, turned his, uh, had already turned his heart, right? That stuff's not really sort of relevant to this conversation. But then Luke says this. He says he would, he, and he's talking about Ben here, he would bring destruction, pain, death, and the end of everything I love because of what he will become. So meditate, think about that line. Hold that line in your thought. And let's go back to Return of the Jedi. Luke and Vader are underneath that platform, right below the Emperor's throne. You know, uh, Luke, Vader is kind of taunting Luke. And then ultimately Vader senses the fact that Luke has a sister, right? That he has Leia. Um, and then, you know, Vader continues, you know, he says, Obi-Wan was wise to hide her from me. Now his failure is complete. You know, your feelings have now betrayed her too. And then he sort of pulls the trump card, right? Which he says, he says, you know, if you will not turn to the dark side, then perhaps she will. And in that moment, right, when Luke, when, sorry, when Vader throws down that threat of turning Leia to the dark side, in that moment, Luke is looking at his father the same way that he's going to look at his nephew later on, right? He's looking at Vader as someone who would bring destruction, pain, death, and the end of everything I love, right? So he sees Vader the same way that he sees his nephew later on, as this person who carries this potential to bring death, right? To hurt the people that he, Luke, cares about the most, and has the potential to basically undo all, you know, in the case of Vader, the progress that the Rebellion has made. And in the case of Ben, all the progress that Luke has made in trying to rebuild the Jedi, right? So in those two moments, right, Luke is looking at both his father and his nephew in the exact same way, right? As this looming threat, right? Next line that Luke says in The Last Jedi says, And for the briefest moment of pure instinct, I thought I could stop it. He ignites the lightsaber against his father in Return of the Jedi. He ignites the lightsaber against his nephew Ben Solo, right? 
So Luke is sensing this threat from these two people. He, he thinks that they are going to destroy everything and everyone that he loves. And he thinks the solution is to react offensively, right? He goes in for the attack, right? He, in both of those moments, both with his father and both and with his nephew, right? He gives into his fear and he gives into his anger, right? So that's what we see in Return of the Jedi, right? Luke is, you know, he goes in for the kill. He is attacking Vader. We get that great tracking shot that I was just talking about a few minutes ago. And ultimately he overpowers his father, right? He pins him down to the ground. He chops off his hand, right? So in both of those, and, and you know, we don't see anything like that with, you know, Luke and Ben. All we just see him is just, he, he just turns on his lightsaber, nothing more. But again, the thought process and the kind of action reaction is the exact same in both those moments. He's got this threat and he thinks he can solve the threat by, through violence, right? Through acting aggressively. Next line from Luke and the Last Jedi says, it passed like a fleeting shadow, right? Briefest moment appearance like I thought it could stop it. It passed like a fleeting shadow. In the TLJ flashback, it all happens pretty quickly, right? Luke turns on his lightsaber, feels a moment of guilt, turns it off, right? It's all very quick, just a couple of seconds. In Revenge, in sorry, in Return of the Jedi, as we just talked about, it goes on a little bit longer, right? It doesn't. Pa it's not so much a fleeting shadow, right? It doesn't pass until he's got his father on the ground, literally armless, right, defenseless, um, and Vader is there, sort of like begging for mercy, right? And so Luke at that moment has sort of gotten out all of that anger and rage, right? He's he, he defeated his father. He's, he's got him right there, right? He's about to kill him. And then you have the entrance of Palpatine, right? Palpatine kind of walks down the steps. He's laughing, you know, um, he's kind of egging uh, egging him on. And what, is, what does Palpatine say to Luke? Right? He says, your hate has made you powerful. Now fulfill your destiny take your father's place at my side right he's there egging on luke right to finish off his father to finish off vader and to then ultimately become his apprentice right luke is at that moment on the precipice of making the turn to the dark side right and it's once palpatine kind of enters and palpatine sort of makes that concrete makes that real for him to realize that that this is where he is that 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 anger and that fear and that hate sort of passes away like a fleeting shadow, right? Just as it passes in the case with his nephew, uh, with his um, uh, with Ben Solo, right? Next line after that, pass like a fleeting shadow. What does Luke say in the Last Jedi? He says, "And I was left with shame and with consequence," right? So go back to the TLJ flashback, right? When Luke turns off his lightsaber, right? He realizes in that moment. That killing his nephew isn't who he is, right? That it is against his nature to just strike down and murder his nephew um, in cold blood while he's sleeping. But it's too late, right? Ben has seen the ignited lightsaber. He feels betrayed. And Ben goes in for the attack, right? He, he uses the force. He pulls down the entire hut. Luke tries to sort of say, like, wait, no, you know, like, I didn't mean it. But it's already moments past. The deed is done, right? He's lost Ben Solo in that moment. Go back to Return of the Jedi, right? Luke has pinned his father down. He's got Palpatine there egging him on, saying, finish off Darth Vader, become my apprentice. And what do we see? Luke looks down, right? He sees his father's robot hand. He sees his own robot hand. And he recognizes in that moment that he's on the path to the dark side, right? I was left with shame and with consequence, 
right? He realizes the consequences of his actions. He realizes that he has put himself on the precipice of going on the same path as his father, right? As becoming a servant and an instrument of Palpatine. And what do we see him do? We see him, he takes a breath, stops himself, turns off the lightsaber and throws it away, right? Shame and with consequence. He sees that he's about to kill his father. He sees he's about to take a step down the dark path and that he is on a path to no return, right? That he's about, he's about to go in a way that he cannot turn back if he keeps going, right? So there you go, right? TLJ Luke, about to murder Ben Solo. Return of the Jedi Luke, about to murder Darth Vader. Consistency, the same. It is the same arc, right? Um, it is the same guy, right? That is important. There is no, there, there is no break. There is no contradiction, right? Luke in the Last Jedi is the same person as Return of the Jedi. Luke, right? That's really important to keep in mind, right? And it is something that Yoda himself emphasizes, right? When he comes back as a Force ghost and talks to Luke, right? When he says, "Ah, Skywalker, still looking to the horizon," right? What he is saying there is, you're still OT Luke in there, right? Like you may have gotten older, you may have gotten kind of wiser, you may be a more experienced Jedi Master, but deep down right? You've still got those flaws. You're still Luke. You're still you, right? You still have those shortcomings in there and you still act on them sometimes, right? So the same impulses and the same motivation and reasoning that led Luke to almost kill his father in Return of the Jedi also almost lead him to almost kill his nephew in The Last Jedi, or at least in the in the flashback that we see in The Last Jedi. So it's important continuity, consistency. There is no contradiction between original trilogy Luke and sequel trilogy Luke. Really, really important to emphasize because, because a lot of people say it, a lot of people believe it, but it's just not there. If you take that deep dive, there is the consistency. All right, that's Return of Jedi. All right, so now we are at our top two. So now we get to number two. From The Phantom Menace, The Duel of the Fates. Right? Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan against Darth Maul. And even as I say it, I can like I can just hear the duel of the fates music in my head. You're like bum bum ba da dum bum bum ba da dum just immediately, right? As soon as you say it and think about it, it's right there. Now I think in much the same way that like the Vader Obi-Wan duel from A New Hope is the kind of stand-in for um for the original trilogy duel. I think the Duel of the Fates is the, like, preeminent prequel duel, right? Like, it is the one that everybody thinks about when they think about, like, what duel from the prequels embodies lightsaber dueling at the time. The thing of the Duel of the Fates. Um, and it was very much, at the time, it was a really unprecedented duel. It was a duel that we'd never seen before, right? On the one hand, right, we have a um, antagonist, right? We've got a Sith using a double-bladed lightsaber, which was totally new, Um and then also, right, we have, you know, we, we see, you know, two Jedi fighting one dark side user, which we'd never seen before, right? We'd only ever had up to this point, um, at least in the movies, you know, there was the expanded universe and everything. But, right, we, we just had seen, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, either Obi-Wan Vader or Luke Vader. And now here we have two Jedi fighting one, um, one dark side user. So it was in a lot of ways a duel that we'd never really seen before. Um, and also was unprecedented just in terms of, um, choreography and the way that it was fought and setting and all of that stuff that I kind of talked a little bit about earlier in the episode. Um, and, you know, um, recently, you know, a few months back, we got the, um, the, the Mandalorian docu-series that got released on Disney Plus. And within there, we got from Dave Filoni and just an incredible breakdown of the duel of the fates and its kind of deeper meaning and significances. And again, um, I'll try. I'll try and find a a YouTube link for that. Um, but if you have Disney Plus, 
and you haven't watched the Mando docuseries, go watch that. I think it's like at the end of episode two, maybe Dave Filoni goes on like 10 minutes talking about the Duel of the Fates. Um, and it's a really, really incredible breakdown that he gives. I cannot do it justice here. But basically what he says is like, this duel is really over the kind of fate of Anakin's upbringing. You know, and he makes up the point that like, Qui-Gon Jinn was a sort of father figure or would have become a father figure to Anakin um, had he actually gotten the opportunity to train Anakin as a Jedi. But because Maul kills Qui-Gon, um, he is instead trained by Obi-Wan, who really wasn't a father figure to Anakin, who really wasn't all that interested in Anakin in The Phantom Menace, as we see, and who really became more of a brother to Anakin, uh, more of an equal, whereas what Anakin really needed growing up was a kind of father figure that he never really had because he was just raised by Shmi. Um, so... Um, so, I th so, so he really does like a great breakdown. They're talking about how that duel and how what Maul does in killing Qui-Gon fundamentally alters the trajectory of Anakin's life and potentially sort of puts him on uh, on the path to, to becoming Darth Vader down the road. I mean, who knows? Like, if you can do the what if about, like, what if Qui-Gon had raised Anakin? You know, would, like, would Anakin still have turned? And, like, that's a, that's a hypothetical to, to contemplate. Um, I also like, uh, you know, uh, th uh, this year we got the release of um, Queen's Peril, which was the um, E.K. Johnson's book, her second book about um, Padme Amidala and the Handmaidens that is set really before The Phantom Menace and then kind of the, the later chapters go into events of The Phantom Menace. And there's a great little, I, sh I should probably tag this as like, this is a slight spoiler for Queen's Peril if you have not read it and are planning to. But there's a great little interlude scene towards the end of that book where you basically, uh, we see Maul um, plotting out the duel, essentially, like while the while the Battle of Naboo is raging and before um, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan have shown up. And it's basically like, there's this whole description of him kind of like walking through the palace at Feed and going through the um, that, that big room that I was talking about before with the energy beams and like the ray shielded doors and everything. Um, and him basically sort of like stalking out what is the, you know, what is the best place that he can kind of lead the Jedi on in order to kind of gain maximal territorial advantage. Um, and I think that I, I really love that moment in Queen's Peril. And it's probably my favorite moment of the book because it really does add depth, uh, um, depth to that uh, duel. And now when, now when I think about when I think about that duel and the way it progresses, it very much does look like if you now watch Phantom Menace. Uh, it really does look like Maul is kind of leading uh, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan down a path that he is already kind of predetermined uh, to where he thinks he can kind of best pin down the Jedi and take them out. So I really, really like that um, about Queen's Peril. So yeah, Duel of the Fates. Best prequel duel. Absolutely iconic. Fantastic music. I don't think I even... Yeah, I mentioned the music briefly. But yeah, just like absolute killer music. John Williams at his best. So that brings us up to the number one spot, right? And the number one duel in all of Star Wars comes naturally from the number one movie in all of Star Wars. Yoda and Count Dooku in Attack of the Clones. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. It's Luke and Vader. It's The Empire Strikes Back. It's Cloud City. What else could it be, right, folks? The best duel in all of Star Wars from The Empire Strikes Back. What 
can be said that hasn't been said about this duo, honestly, right? You know, I was talking before at the start of the show, I was talking about, you know, aesthetics and pathos as being these, like, two elements of a great lightsaber duel. And, like, this duel is just, like, 200-proof pathos, right? Like, it is all passion. It is all emotion. And it's just incredible, right? You know, you have the whole lead-up to the duel, right, where... Luke is on Dagobah, and he ultimately has this vision of Han and Leia being harmed, and he cuts his training short, right, against the advice of both Yoda and Obi-Wan, and he flies off to Cloud City to face Vader, um, which, again, not to beat a dead horse, but is yet another parallel to The Last Jedi, right? Luke, he has this vision, right? He is afraid for his friends, he's afraid for the people who are going to get hurt, and that motivates him to act rashly and to do something stupid, which is to go and confront Vader before his training is complete, right? And he gets his ass kicked, right? So again, you know, the, the Luke who cuts his training short in The Empire Strikes Back is the Luke who almost kills his father in Return of the Jedi, is the Luke who almost kills his nephew in The Last Jedi, is the Luke who decides to ultimately, you know, after his nephew turns to just pack it all up and go off into an island in exile in the middle of nowhere to die. Straight line, A to B, B to C, flies off to Bespin, um, and then he is ultimately lured in to the carbon freezing chamber where Luke, where Vader is waiting for him. And then you get the great line from Darth Vader, one of the all-time lines from Star Wars, right? The Force is with you, young Skywalker, but you are not a Jedi yet. Brutal line, right? Absolutely brutal, right? Vader just completely putting down Luke trying to tell him that he is in over his head. But of course, Luke doesn't listen and he goes in for the attack. And he is able to kind of hold his own for a little while, particularly while the fight is in the carbon freezing chamber. Um, but then ultimately, as it kind of, the, 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 the field of battle moves, he is utterly outmatched um, by Vader. You know, he go and, you know, you really see that, but almost the kind of, the apex of that is that moment where they are, um, in that little room, I can't even sort of describe it. And, you know, Vader comes out and he starts, like, force-flinging all the, like, crap at Luke. And he, like, pushes him out of the window. And there's a good little, like, detail in there that, like, I totally, like, wasn't cognizant of or paying attention to until, like, very recent, until a couple years, a few years ago. Which is that you see in that scene, actually, Vader being able to turn off his breathing apparatus, right? Because he's in the space, with Luke, he's close by, but you don't actually hear him breathing until he kind of comes out of the darkness and starts, like, um, a attacking Luke. So it doesn't like Vader does have that ability um, that he demonstrates in The Empire Strikes Back, where he can turn off his breathing and go into a kind of stealth mode, which I think is really interesting. And then, yeah, as I mentioned, he starts throwing stuff at Luke, and it's just this moment where he shows just how much more powerful he is than Luke, right? He, he, he tried to warn him at the start of the duel that Luke was in over his head. Luke didn't listen, and now he is just, like, giving him the wallop. Um, and then, you know, they fight across that, like, spire or platform, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, Luke does that strike where he hits um, Vader's um, shoulder pad, and then, like, Vader sort of, like, kicks it up a notch after that, right? Like, he, he then starts becoming much more aggressive and... Um, um, and much more offensive even than before, and he ultimately cuts off Luke's hand, and then we get that great little, we get that great speech, right, the great exchange between Vader and Luke, right, where Vader gives his, you know, join me speech, um, and he's talking about, you know, the, 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 the two of them ruling the galaxy and destroying the Emperor, and he holds his hand out, right, again, as a parallel, the same way that 
Kylo does to Rey in The Last Jedi, just like Maul does to Ahsoka in The Clone Wars. And then, of course, right, the punch in the gut, right? No, I am your father, right? The m- and this is really like, this is the moment where I think Star Wars, in Star Wars, where the opera in space opera really sort of comes in full flesh, right? Like, this is the moment that Star Wars, even more than anything else in A New Hope or early in The Empire Strikes Back, where Star Wars reaches those kind of epic, Shakespearean, dramatic heights, I think, right? Once you learn that this person, right, this evil person that Luke has been trying to destroy, this person that has been hunting Luke down, is, uh, in fact, Luke's own father, right? Um, That, you know, Luke had been led to believe by Obi-Wan, right, that Vader had killed his father, uh, but that ultimately Vader is his father. And then, you know, you you see, you know, after that duel when Luke ultimately escapes on the the Falcon, right, Luke feeling that sense of betrayal from Obi-Wan, right, when he, you know, when he closes his eyes and says, Ben, why didn't you tell me, right? Um, I think that that is the moment where, like, Star Wars really hits its kind of operatic, dramatic heights um, with the with the with the Vader revelation, and unfortunately, like regrettably, I can't remember like whether I knew Vader was Luke's father before the first time I saw The Empire Strikes Back. I think maybe I did. Like I don't I, I don't have any I, I don't have any recollection of my first time seeing. Um, seeing the empire strikes back so i don't remember if that like shocked me or anything but like if i could go back and like do like a you know men in black memory wipe so that i could experience that for the first time i absolutely would like it would be totally great to just get that about face so yeah those are the top 10 duels in all of star wars you know um i mean everybody's got their own list and their own rankings um as i mentioned i do want to talk about i've got um i've got four duels here that i've got basically as bubble picks so ones that like that didn't quite crack the top 10 for me, but I do want to mention because I think they do have great little moments. And there are no doubt in some people's top 10s who are listening. So I so I should give them a shout out and give them the respect they deserve. So the first bubble duel that I want to mention is from Revenge of the Sith. is a duel that I've already kind of alluded to a couple times in this episode, which is Yoda and Palpatine on Coruscant. And I think this one, like, less so obviously than the Anakin-Obi-Wan duel. But I think this duel was also kind of a little bit anticipated going into Revenge of the Sith, right? Seeing, like, the masters of the light and the dark side, right? The two most powerful users um, in the light side and the dark side of the Force going toe-to-toe, I think, I think was a, uh, I think is great. I love all the little stuff that happens in, like, Palpatine's office beforehand where, like, um, where, like, Yoda force pushes the, the royal guards, um... And like their whole con and their their whole little like back and forth that they have, I think is really really good too. And then as I mentioned before, when I was talking about aesthetics and setting, the whole symbolism of um, of the duel in the Senate chambers and Palpatine like basically destroying literally um, the democratic institution of the Republic, I think that's all really really great um, too. And again, like as with the Anakin Obi Wan duel, we do get some great music coming out of um, this duel too. So. Definitely one, definitely one worth mentioning. In another time, it might, it could have easily been a top ten, but I think that there's just so many great lightsaber uh, duel moments that it unfortunately got bumped out of the top ten. The next one that I want to mention, the next bubble duel, is also from Revenge of the Sith. Some good duels in the Re- Revenge of the Sith, and that is the um, Obi Wan and Anakin's um, 
rematch with Dooku on the Invisible Hand on General Grievous' ship. Now, I sort of knocked this duel a little bit earlier in the episode and I was talking about, like, CGI that hasn't aged well. And there's definitely some of that with Christopher Lee. Like, there's that, like, flippy jump he does over the over the railing um, when he first enters the room and that, that goes CGI. And it's like, was that really necessary? Like, couldn't he just walk down the stairs? Sure, he could have just walked down the stairs, right? Um, th that, that was a flourish that was not really necessary. And again, like, doesn't super, hasn't super aged well, in my opinion. But one of the things that I really do love about this duel is I do think we do get some great, like, fighting, particularly when it's just one-on-one -on -one Anakin Dooku. But then in particular, the thing I like this duel a lot is the way that it actually ends when, uh, when Dooku, when Anakin chops Dooku's hands off and he's got him, like, pinned down with his lightsabers. Because it's a perfect parallel to what we see in Return of the Jedi with Vader Luke, right? Because you've got, you've, you've got the, the, the reigning Sith Apprentice there. Anakin has bested him. Palpatine is there. And then, you know, Palpatine is doing the same thing where he's doing this little chuckle and he's saying, good. And then he's saying, kill him, right? Kill him now. So he's doing the same thing that he will ultimately do to Luke um, in Return of the Jedi, right? Where he is sort of goading on his, you know, would be the next apprentice into killing his former apprentice. And whereas, you know, as we, as we talked about, like, Luke doesn't take the bait, right? He throws away his lightsaber. He, he reaffirms his commitment to the light side and to the Jedi. Anakin falls to the temptation, right? He decapitates Dooku, and he sort of takes that step in towards the dark side. Um, so I just, I, I love that that got paralleled, and I think it works really, really well. And I think it's a good, it's a good illustration of, like, the way that Palpatine kind of uses people instrumentally, right? He sort of disposes with Dooku when he has outlived his purpose and then he ultimately tries to dispose of Anakin of Vader once he has lived outlived his purpose and he's got the like newer fresher model of Apprentice waiting for him there um so that's a, so that's a great duel um third bubble pick comes from The Rise of Skywalker no yeah I only had one sequel trilogy duel in the top 10 I think some people would probably make the case that this is also a top 10 duel but again like and I'm, I'm not going to disagree with folks, but but there's just so many of them that didn't make the cut. And that is Rey and Kylo on Kef Beer, right? Their fight on the Death Star Two wreckage. Um, this is a really th th this is this is a really fun duel. Um, I think it is well choreographed. Um, you know, as, as we talked about before with the evolution of lightsaber duels, it's one that doesn't lean all that much on computer graphics. It's a lot of physicality, um, and that's really good. And um, just the kind of emotion, right, that, like, you uh, you have Kylo sort of steadily wearing Rey down, and he has very clearly sort of gotten the best of her, and then you have the moment where Leia intercedes, right, where she's sort of at her dying moment um, to get Ben to turn back to the light, and then he sort of drops his lightsaber and Rey gets it, and she stabs him with the lightsaber, and ultimately he's able to um, defeat him, but then... And it's sort of a parallel with with Return of the Jedi, right? Much in the same way that Luke kind of has this realization with Vader that, like, uh oh, like, I'm like I'm on the dark path, like I'm on the precipice here. She also has this moment where she, you know she realizes that in attacking Kylo, she's taken this step in um, down a bad path, and so she ultimately tries to kind of rectify that by you know force healing Ben. And then we get just that that the beautiful line from from Daisy Ridley from Ray, right? When she says, I didn't want to take your hand, Ben's hand. Um, and she ultimately, you know, runs off to go to her, um, to, to exile in Octo. 
So I think that's a that's a great duel. And again, that's that's one I could imagine like a couple of years. Like if I think you know, if if I do it like a, if if I rethink my top ten in like two three years or something like that, could easily end up becoming like a top ten duel. Again, it's a kind of like it's a wine thing where it's like ages with time. Um, but it is a is it a great great duel. And then my last bubble pick. Um, this one is kind of probably a little like this might be a little I don't know hot takey or. It's 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 one that's kind of under the radar, I think, for even the diehard Star Wars fans. But I would make a case that it is, I think, it is in the pantheon of like great lightsaber duels, and that is from Star Wars Rebels. That is Kanan and the Grand Inquisitor over Mustafar. So the the season one finale duel, uh, I think, is a great duel. I think it is. I think there is a lot of emotional weight to that duel. Um, you know, as we see over the course of that first season. Um, in, you know, previous encounters that Kanan and the Grand Inquisitor have, that Kanan is very much haunted by the fact that he abandoned his master, Depa Balaba, right? Um, when Order 66 took place, that he ran away and she was killed. And, you know, the Grand Inquisitor sort of um, goads him uh, about that. And, like, this duel very much for Kanan is this moment of redemption where he's, gonna, where he's not going to run away and... Um, and he's going to sort of like stand up for himself and stand up for his own apprentice for Ezra um, and fight off the Grand Inquisitor. And much like a couple of the other duels that we talked about, I think there's it, it's got one of the great Star Wars exchanges here, right? Where Kanan says the Grand Inquisitor at one point, he says, you know, that was a mistake. And then the Grand Inquisitor replies, why? Because you have no one left to die for you? And then Kanan answers back, no, because I have nothing left to fear. Great line. Great exchange right there. Just like the I am, like revenge is not the... the is not the Jedi way. I am no Jedi. Great exchange there, and then you go straight into the duel. Um, so that so that's a that, that's a really good duel. And then I also like the way that it ends, right? When you have the Grand Inquisitor sort of hang on the ledge of like the, the burning engine, and you know he says something like, I don't know the exact line here, but he says something like, you know, there there are certain things worse than death. Sort of alluding to um, the specter of Darth Vader, and he sort of ultimately um, kills himself because he doesn't want to face down the wrath of. Um, of Vader for his failure, um, so I think that's a great duel um, overall. I think it I, I, I think it merits mention um, as um, as one of the all timer duels in Star Wars. So yeah, that's our discussion of lightsaber duels in Star Wars. Um, so I hope you I hope you enjoy that. I hope it sort of um, I hope it added to your sort of not to your kind of appreciation and your sort of analysis and your own reading of lightsaber duels. Um, hopefully maybe got you to think about it in either new or different ways or something like that. What to expect from episode three. So that will be releasing in two weeks from now. So that is going to be August 30th. Um, if I'm right about that. Yes, it will be August 30th. Um, so August thirty. So the so episode three is going to be looking at is going to be taking a deep dive at one of the kind of more controversial decisions made in the rise of Skywalker. Now I know you might be asking me like, what could you be possibly referring to? There is so so much that people uh, find controversial and polarizing about that movie. Uh, but I'm going to be really focusing the entire episode on the return of Palpatine in the Rise of Skywalker. And so I'm going to be doing a deep dive, a kind of deconstruction of Palpatine's um, pr uh, presence and role in that film, and 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 what he is doing in terms of the story overall. You know, there are some people who have kind of knocked the um, knocked the return of Palpatine for a number of different reasons. But what I'm going to do in in episode three is really make the case that. 
his his presence in that movie is important and that it ties up a lot of the kind of narrative and thematic loose threads that kind of run through the entire Skywalker saga all the way from the prequels through the original trilogy through the sequel trilogy and folks let me tell you I've done most of the show notes for episode three and let me tell you it is going to be a wild episode I mean we're going to get into everything like in and around Palpatine you know not just Palpatine himself but we're going to be talking about Plagueis we're going to be talking about um the Dyad, the Chosen One, Rey Skywalker, everything is on the table. We're going to be talking about all of it and how it all connects and how the Rise of Skywalker sort of wraps up some of these core central elements of Star Wars. Um, and I think it's going to be a really, really fun um, episode. So, you know, until that time... Uh, Make sure if you're not if you haven't already that you subscribe to a large review of the force on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Um, we uh, large review of the force is on Twitter. If you want to follow me there, um, it is at a larger view pod. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter. I've got my own um, uh, personal Twitter account that is at dmondum. Both of those are going to be in the um, episode description for you to find there. And then until next time, I'm going to leave you with Cheer Emily's words once again. Look for the force, you will always find me.